Luke chapter 2, we're going to look at verse 8 through verse 16 this morning. And would you do as we do every week, stand with me in respect of the word of God as I read our portion of scripture this morning. It says Luke 2 verse 8, now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And Father, we just humbly uh, pause and ask for your spirit to prepare our hearts, that, Lord, you would take away those things from within our minds, even of this holiday season that might distract us in this very hour, And that, Lord, our attention and our heart would be to hear what you would say to us, that we'd hear your voice speaking to us, Lord. So we ask, minister to us through your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit, who inspired it, would now be our teacher and our instructor. And we ask that you'd speak to each and every one of us this morning as we continue to worship now. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Now, how would you say that you measure what would be perhaps quantified as a good Christmas? Well, the word Christmas itself obviously is a compound word. Two words, Christ and then mas. The word Christ, pretty self-explanatory, is a reference to Jesus Christ. And the word mas, that's on the end of that, it's an old English term. And it actually speaks of celebration. So when you put the two words together, the compound word Christmas, it means the celebration of Christ. So one of the ways that you certainly can know that you've had a good Christmas is if you personally have celebrated the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a time of year for those of us certainly who are believers and followers of Jesus. It's an occasion when we celebrate his birth and his life as the son of God. Remember, Jesus is the eternally existent God. He's been around forever with the Father in heaven. And yet there was a time period where he left the eternal dimension and came into this world to live as a man. His life didn't begin when he was born as a man. That was just the beginning of his earthly life. Jesus is the very son of God, eternally existent. But at a set time, God, through a miracle, put miraculously the life of his son, Jesus Christ, into the womb of a young Jewish virgin girl named Mary. 
for the purpose that Jesus might be born as a man, live as a man, so that he could reach and redeem mankind, so that God could live among us for a time in a body of flesh, so that we could see what God was truly like in the fullest way, and so that ultimately Jesus could provide as a man the sacrifice that all mankind needed, because Jesus wasn't born to live, unlike you and I, Jesus was born to die ultimately to die for our sins upon the cross to make a way for us to have a relationship with God and access into heaven. Well, Luke 2 gives us the biblical narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, it records for us how it happened and how it was announced and the way it was even first celebrated in ancient Israel. It tells us who celebrated it and why they celebrated and even we kind of see what the celebration itself involved. The first seven verses of this chapter record the actual details themselves of the actual birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary. Uh, it tells us he was born in Bethlehem because it was predicted hundreds of years before together with hundreds of other prophecies, specific predictions of exactly what the life of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah would be. And therefore, Jesus was born in Bethlehem as a fulfillment of a prediction from hundreds of years ago. He also was born in very humble conditions in a lowly way and somewhat like what we would refer to as an animal stable. If you look in verse seven, prior to where we just read, it says that she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. That literally would be a reference to a feeding trough, the language speaks of. And it says that there he was laid in that manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, verse 8 through 16, which we want to give our attention to this morning, record for us what happens directly following the birth of Jesus Christ or in response to the birth of Jesus. It tells us a few things here, particularly, primarily, his birth announcement, what was happening in response to Jesus' coming. And I pray it would help us to therefore respond properly ourselves today uh, as we celebrate the birth of Christ that we could respond properly to it by gleaning some things that we find here. Look with me again if you would draw your attention back to verse 8. It tells us, Now there were in the same country where Jesus had just been born shepherds, living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. So take notice, God and all of heaven that have been waiting forever for this very special hour, it seems, are so excited about the coming of Jesus to this earth for mankind that they sort of just interrupt everyday human affairs here, we read, and break the glorious news to give this birth announcement. We're told here in our text what takes place. And one thing we want to notice first off that happened, certainly during this first Christmas in ancient Israel, was this, is that God took all of the attention off of the temporal realm and he put all the attention upon the spiritual realm instead. And I think it's a great lesson for all of us. Let's see how this happened. First of all, look who God selects to give the birth announcement to. Verse 8 tells us that the birth announcement of Jesus being born comes to shepherds in that area. It says living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks that night. Now, this is quite interesting. Here's the most important child that's ever been born in human history. 
This is the most influential birth that has ever happened and God does not send the birth announcement to the ruler of the land. He doesn't send the birth announcement to a king. He doesn't send the birth announcement even to a priest or to one of the prophets. Instead, God sends this birth announcement, this very special news, first of all, to a group of lowly shepherds. Now, it's important to realize, I think today we kind of almost have a little bit of a romanticized view of what shepherds are like. You need to realize in this culture, particularly, shepherds were viewed as sort of the low caste of society. Uh, they sort of had a negative stigma in people's minds. Shepherds were considered to kind of be questionable and character and uncultured because they were living out in the fields. Again, they, they weren't cultured and refined like the people who lived in the towns. They lived out there in the, in the fields, in the wilderness, sleeping under the stars. And so, let's be honest, uh, they were exposed to a lot of practices and lifestyles that were kind of loose and immoral and questionable. And so shepherds were kind of rough and unrefined in their manner and looked down upon. They, uh, they were the kind of guys you didn't probably want your daughter to date. Okay, this is kind of the attitude of, of shepherds. You know, just anybody but a shepherd, please don't bring a shepherd home. So, so this was the stigma, again, that you have to understand that shepherds carried. Now, whether it was true of them individually, they had a reputation for being sinful and immoral. That was just sort of their reputation. They were not allowed shepherds in that day. They weren't allowed to testify in court. That should tell you something. They were considered unclean ceremonially and they were not welcome in the temple. Yet, keep in mind here, it is to this group that God chooses to announce first of all and approaches first to make them aware of Jesus. And that's because God loves people so incredibly and he loves all people equally no matter what their class or condition or situation. God loves everyone. And he has a heart for all people. And Jesus did not come for those who think that they're righteous or think that they're good or think that they don't need any help. Jesus came for those who know that they're sinners, for those who understand that they have need. In fact, Jesus himself said that he came to seek and to save the lost. That's who he came for. Uh, those who understand that they're lost and need some help in their lives. I want you to notice here in our text, verse 8, notice what those shepherds were doing when this happened. It says there in verse 8 that they were out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks. Uh, the implication here, very simply, is they're busily occupied with their activities of everyday life. They're working their jobs. They're taking care of their responsibilities. At this point, their attention foremost is on everything that's temporal, everything that's material. And I think they become a good picture today because most people today, many people today, are kind of busily occupied, are they not, tending to the things in the fields of their lives. You are here worshiping the Lord. There are multitudes of people who are out in the fields of shopping malls. And, and, and they're just preoccupied with the, the responsibilities of everything of this life and responsibilities and work. There are people who are, again, just like these shepherds, they're just busily occupied. Their attention is focused upon the fields of everything that's involved in their life and just everyday affairs and how to survive and get by and 
what is material, and, and their total attention and focus is on the fields of all their human commitments and earthly responsibilities. And so therefore their total attention and their main focus is on what is of this world. And because of that, therefore, they're living their life typically unaware of, or worse perhaps, totally unconcerned about what's spiritual unconcerned about what is eternal and even as these shepherds were doing this in the dark of night i tell you people who are living their life that way they're living in the dark because they're not aware and they're not seeing what god really wants for them that is so much better for their lives so at this point we see god's going to turn the attention of these shepherds from what's earthly and temporal and what they're doing to what is spiritual and eternal in its reality and god without needing you notice here without needing to ask their permission he just breaks right into their little world and gets their attention in a powerful way to reveal the things of the lord look at verse 9 it just says and behold all of a sudden in the dark of the night an angel of the lord stood before them and the glory of the lord shone around them and they were greatly afraid so out of the dark of night this angel just appears before them no forewarning the glory of heaven is now radiating from the presence of this angel who shows up that has just come from the eternal dimension and stepped into their world in the dark night out in that field and he illuminates imagine the light sky and it says there that the glory of the lord from heaven shone all around them now you could just imagine this overpowering, brilliant, glorious light coming from the eternal dimension of the glory of God and they are now made incredibly conscious and keenly aware at this point in time of the spiritual realm and things which are of the Lord. In fact, you notice their response there in verse 9 when this experience happened. It caused them to feel so overwhelmed in their weakness and their humanity that they're utterly humble. Look at the end of verse 9. It says they were not just afraid, they were greatly afraid. This overwhelmed them. This experience with the things of God shook them to the core. Now, why does it say they're greatly afraid? Well, probably, I think, because they instantly probably had a sense of the awareness of their own sinfulness as human beings when the presence of the glory of the things of God came into encounter with their life and this powerful and unmistakable realization the Lord is real and he is awesome and we are sinful and weak men and so because of this, all of a sudden, they are humbled to the core and probably, or I bet, face down, greatly afraid and overwhelmed, wondering maybe even if they're going to be judged for their ways. And I want you to note here, when someone has a true spiritual encounter with the Lord, do you see the byproduct? They're powerfully humbled in a personal way. When somebody has a genuine encounter with the Lord, it just reduces the proud human spirit down to nothing. And there's a humility that comes over a person's life as a result. At this point, would you agree the attention and the focus of these men was taken from everything that was temporal 
And it certainly was probably riveted now their attention upon what is spiritual and eternal and how that pertained to them and their lives. And I think it's a reminder for us as we celebrate Christmas today, even as they were having those first experiences in ancient Israel, that God's heart, and I think especially at Christmas, is that he desires to take our attention off of what's temporal and material and put our attention upon what is spiritual, what's eternal. I think it's a good opportunity to ask ourselves a question this morning. What is the majority of your attention on in your life right now? In your life right now, as you're busy tending the fields of your life and this and that, what is really, truly the primary thing that you're focused on? What is your primary attention given to? That which is temporal and material or is the primary attention of your heart and your soul and your mind being foremost perceptive of what's spiritual, what's eternal, what really is going to last and truly matters. And during this holiday, are you more concerned about everything being right circumstantially than you are things being right spiritually in your heart? The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 3, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. That's great counsel. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Notice, he he says the mind. The idea is it's a choice. It truly is sometimes to shift our focus, to choose to think about things above and have that be our perspective instead of being consumed with the things of the earth that are so pressing for our attention. Well, let's go on and look at verse 10. Now we get the message that came forth. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. So here now we get the message that God sends through this angelic messenger that God wants to speak to these shepherds. Take note what God spoke through the angel to these shepherds. The main point God wanted to communicate about was who Jesus was and what Jesus was offering to them. The first thing we see there in verse 10 That Jesus came so that people, number one, don't have to be fearful, but instead can actually be joyful instead. That people don't have to be fearful, but actually can experience great joy. He says to them in response to them being greatly afraid and overwhelmed, first thing he says, verse 10, do not be afraid. Now, again, they were probably worried, as I said, likely because they were feeling somewhat overwhelmed, thinking, oh, my goodness, are we going to be judged by God because of who we are? We, we know who we are. And see, when we have a genuine encounter with the Lord in our life, every person experiences that. You don't have to be a shepherd to experience that because we all know who we are. We all know things that at times in our lives that we have done that we shouldn't have done or thought that we shouldn't have thought or said that we shouldn't have said. And uh, it really shouldn't take a lot of convincing for any of us to come to terms with the fact that, yeah, I I have failed a few times. And that's an understatement. (laughs) And they're feeling overwhelmed. And this message comes from God. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And the reason why is the message was not going to bring condemnation, but an announcement of salvation 
that God was now sending and would be available through Jesus. It makes me think of the words of Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 17. Many of us all know John 3, 16. It's the probably world's most famous verse. But the very next statement is wonderful because there in John 3, 17, Jesus said this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And this was the news of why they didn't have to be afraid. In fact, this was a message of really good news to help everyone. And if the news was believed and responded to, we read here in our text in verse 10, if it was believed and responded to, this news would bring great joy, not just joy, but great joy to all people. Now, how would it bring joy? Well, it would bring the joy if it was believed upon and it was responded to, the news of Jesus, it would bring the joy of knowing one's sins are forgiven and that God's no longer in any way against me. I've been cleansed of my mistakes, cleared of my failures, my record and my slate is washed and wiped clean before a holy God. It would bring the joy of knowing that, the joy of knowing that God is not against me or angry, but God is for me and he loves me. It would bring the joy of knowing that you have an assurance that when you die, you know that you're going to go to heaven. Not, I hope I might make it, but the joy of knowing because of Jesus, I'm assured of my eternal destiny now because I've received the gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It would bring the joy uh, of, of having a personal experience with Jesus in a relational way where he would help you as a shepherd and the Lord actually guide and navigate you through earthly experiences of this challenging world and the joy of having an ongoing experience with Jesus where you experience his love and the joy of experiencing his peace and his help and his mercy and his grace and, and, and his power and strength to live life and to live a life that's pleasing to God and the power of the Lord to work in our lives to bring change in our lives to change things about us we can't change ourselves that we wish would change and the power to overcome sin and the joy of just enjoying the presence of the Lord even as we did this morning in the midst of a worship gathering where you can experience the joy of just worshiping the Lord and experiencing His presence in a special way. God's will is not for us as it was not for them to live afraid. And specifically, God's will is not for us to live afraid to die. That's not God's plan. Yet that is probably one of the biggest fears most human beings, they may not acknowledge, are all terrified of initially. Until they meet the Lord and realize, you don't have to be afraid to die. Listen, I'm not excited about the process. I never got a chance to practice it yet. You only get one shot at it. But I'm not afraid of what's going to happen after. Because I know because of Jesus, you can have the joy of that experience that, yes, I don't know how it will happen, but I know that I know that I'm right with God and where I'm going certainly afterwards because of the gift of God. And Jesus wants to alleviate those fears by offering us help. And Jesus' life, it says here in verse 10, is intended not to, look, not to just bring us joy, but it actually says in the Bible there, don't miss the words, great joy. The adjectives are there purposely. He's 
come to bring great joy this is to anyone who wants to receive what he gives. Jesus said this in John 15, 11. He says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus wants us to experience an ongoing full experience of his joy inside of our lives. That's what he desires for us. Now, remember, we said this before. Sometimes there is a clear difference between joy and happiness. We a lot of times merge the words, and I understand that. It's semantics. But happiness is more of a feeling that's affected by our circumstances or the situations that are happening. For example, maybe you're going to open a Christmas gift, and you're so excited because it was the shirt that you wanted, and so you are happy because you got that shirt. Then... Because you ate a few too many Christmas cookies, when you try it on, you're not so happy anymore because you're struggling to button it. And all of a sudden, happiness come, happiness gone. Joy is something that is more of an experience that comes from an encounter with God that gives an internal sense of pleasure or gladness deep within the soul that can be there and remain there even despite circumstances. It's something much deeper. It's something that God can give that's a constant sense of internal pleasure where like Paul and Silas, when they were jailed in a prison, they were singing hymns and full of joy in the most horrific conditions of their life because they were experiencing something from the Lord, which was joy. This is one of the blessings and benefits of a personal experience with Jesus, is that he can produce joy supernaturally down in the core of your soul, despite what's going on temporally in your circumstances. And this is important, and listen, because let's be very honest, for some people the holidays are difficult. That may be you this morning. For some people, because of their circumstances or current life situations or maybe a loss of a loved one, the holidays for some people are a harder time. It's a difficult time. And how wonderful to know that the life of Jesus can still provide you joy. And if you feel you have nothing at all to rejoice in, you can still rejoice in the Lord. And the joy of the Lord can be your strength, even in the midst of this. There's always reason to rejoice in Jesus. And listen, you don't have to be depressed and discouraged. And it may be hard and the circumstances may be difficult, but God wants to give you a measure of his joy. A joy within here that you can say, yes, Lord, this time is hard. And I wish situations weren't the way they were but Lord, I thank you that I can rejoice in you still and all of who you are and all that you mean to me and the love that you have for me and what you offer to me. And what a wonderful thing that he wants us to have that great joy as people. And secondly, notice in verse 11, God's message also was to indicate that Jesus came to be a savior for us and also the Lord over us. This was another part of the message there. The birth announcement itself is encapsulated in verse 11. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Notice, today there is born to you. The idea is for you. 
This birth has happened to supply something for you personally. And what was it? Number one, he says, a savior. Now, when you look up the word savior, it's defined in this way. One who saves from danger and destruction and provides salvation or rescue. This is what a savior does. For example, when someone is hanging helplessly from a cliff and they cannot rescue themselves and they're about to plunge to their utter death, they need a savior. They need someone to save them from the impending danger and destruction coming upon them. Like the old movies, if we had a set of railroad tracks running right down here, the center aisle, and somebody took you and they tied you up with the rope and the chain and they put you down on the railroad tracks, then here comes the big locomotive driving down the tracks towards you. That person cannot get free themselves, right? What do they need? A savior. They need someone else to come rescue them. Destruction is going to happen whether they want it to or not, and they can't save themselves. So this is important. We never should overlook. The very fact that Jesus is described as a savior, it indicates something about humanity. Two and two, we need to be saved. If he's a savior, that indicates something. That we as human beings need to be saved. Whether we realize it or not, we need to be saved. This is the reality. Uh, Joseph was told that when the baby was born, they were to give him the name Jesus. It says, for he shall save his people from their sins. This is what we need to be saved from. There's no difference. We all sin. We all fall short of the standard of the glory of God. The one thing we all share in this room this morning, if, if nothing else, is this. We're all failures. Congratulations. Merry Christmas. You are a failure. We all make mistakes. And you mean, well, I'm not like one of them shepherds. Well, good. You're just a clean, arrogant sinner. That's all. I mean, just, we're all sinners. We all make mistakes in thought, word, and deed. We, we, we all fail in different ways. And all you need to do, listen, we have, uh, you know, uh, those who are retired police officers in, in our fellowship here. You only got to break the law one time to be a lawbreaker. That's all. You break the law one time, you're a lawbreaker. So we're all equally guilty before a holy God. Our sin has a consequence. It deserves punishment. It deserves judgment before a holy God. And we all fail and dishonor God. And then sin's power controls us and we deserve punishment. But yet Jesus came to be a savior to rescue us from the punishment of our sin, to rescue us from the power of sin, Jesus came as a man. He lived righteously and without sin as a man to fulfill what we can't fulfill. And then after he did that, instead of us being punished for our sin as individual human beings, as one sinless man who satisfied what God's requirement is, he then in our place took the punishment and the judgment for the sin of the whole world, yours, mine, and everybody's included, upon himself to suffer in our place. He was punished for us, died for our sins upon the cross, then three days later defeated death and the power of sin, rose again from the grave, and he's alive. And he's the Savior now. And the one who alone can forgive our sins, the one who alone can free us from the power of sin and give us what we need to rescue us. And if we choose to believe those things and understand that spiritual reality that you can't save yourself, that you can't free yourself 
from the penalty that you deserve for your sin. You can't get yourself out from the power of sin controlling you, but you realize that Jesus came to be your Savior because you need to be saved to forgive you and to release you. That means something, though. That means that at some point in your life, at some given hour, you have to put your full faith and reliance upon that. You have to actually let him save you. There needs to be an experience where it comes to an hour where you ask Jesus as the Savior to save you. Not that you say, yeah, you're, you're a Savior. You're a pretty good Savior. I've seen you save a lot of people. But you say, no, I need to be saved. I see it now, Lord. And between you and I, I want to make sure this is clear. Lord, would you save me? Would you save me from the penalty of my personal sin? Would you save me from what sin has done in my life? Salvation is an experience. I assure you, if somebody's dangling from a cliff, they're not questioning afterwards if somebody saved them. Did you save me or didn't you? I'm not. They know they were saved. They know what happened. It's an experience. It's an event. Acts 4 says, There's salvation in no other, for there's no other name given among men by which we, listen, must be saved. And the glorious thing is this. We don't have to work for it because Jesus did it all. It's a free gift that is supplied for us. We are not saved, nor can we save ourselves, listen, by religious works. Because religious, work, religious works are kind of like deodorant. You know, deodorant makes you feel better because you kind of, if you would, cover what's foul. But it's still there. You just kind of covered it. You just kind of, that covers it. But the foulness is still there. That's kind of like religious works. We maybe go to church or do some religious rituals or religious routines and people kind of feel like that kind of covers and atone. Well, that kind of makes me feel better about myself. Now, you're kind of appeasing your conscience. That's like putting on deodorant. What's foul about us all is still there. It's called sin. It needs to be removed from us. We need to be saved from it. Jesus saves us from it. He delivers us from it. We have to receive his gift of salvation and receive it by faith. The Bible says this, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is to say, Jesus, I understand. Jesus, will you save me? And to put our faith and our reliance in that way and to actually have an experience between us and the Lord where we do that. So Jesus was called and came to be a savior. We also see verse 11 that Jesus also came to be the Lord. It says there that he is Christ, verse 11, the Lord. The word Lord there is curios. It speaks of a master over servants. The will of God for each of our lives is because of who Jesus is as the Lord of all that at some point we would also embrace and submit to Jesus as the Lord over us personally. Is he the Lord of all? Absolutely. That's not going to change. But at some point, God's will is that we also would embrace Jesus and submit to him as the Lord over us in a personal way. For our life, that is that we would surrender our life to him and his rulership over us. That in faith and willingness, we would submit to Jesus' authority and say, I want you to be my Lord. I now want to follow you. I want you to be my master. I want to be your servant. I want you, Jesus, to take over control of my life. I don't know about you. I, I spent 17 years of my life driving and behind the steering wheel of my own life. Didn't work out too well. 
I got lost, I took a lot of wrong turns, hit a few things, made a few bad choices. But Jesus being Lord is to say, Lord, take the steering wheel. Remember that song years ago, Jesus, take the wheel? It's the idea there. That we let Jesus take control to be an authority over our life. We dethrone ourselves and we enthrone Jesus. God's desire and plan is that we live submitted to Jesus' rulership. Today, can I ask you, are you honoring the lordship of Jesus over your life by how you live? By how you live. Jesus said, verse, uh, Luke chapter 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? The implication there is the lordship of Jesus means I live according to whatever Jesus says, and he is a great ruler and a great master. Well, thirdly, we see as well in verse 12 there, the shepherds were given a clear instruction how to find Jesus. They said to them, this will be the sign. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Notice again, God sent his son in such a humble, lowly way. Such a humble, lowly way. Think about this. What the Bible describes of the birth of Jesus, he wasn't born, again, this is God's son. He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born in the best hospital on the earth with the most incredible pediatric staff. What the Bible describes of the birth of the Son of God is he was born somewhat probably in like a stable or a cave, an animal enclosure, and it says laid in a manger. The term there literally is a feeding trough for animals. Now, I'm not a farmer, but the last time I kind of envisioned a feeding trough, I envisioned saliva and germs and gross. Doesn't sound very hygienic. Doesn't sound very glorious, but I want you to notice most of us probably had a better birth than Jesus did. Why would God do such a thing? Because he wanted Jesus to be very approachable to everyone so that everyone would find Jesus. Notice he wants these shepherds to, it says, find Jesus. You will find him. That's what God wants for people to find Jesus. Verse 13 says, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, good will toward men so look what happens next another interruption once the message is finished all of a sudden now this message of the birth announcement comes to a close and verse 13 and 14 describe here out of the eternal dimension not just one angel now but look what happens a multitude of heavenly hosts the idea here is a large multitude of angels picture like a big heavenly christmas choir just burst onto the scene now and they start leading this spontaneous worship meeting in the open fields. It says there they were praising God saying glory to God in the highest. And this worship is ascending up to God for sending Jesus. Enthusiastic worship was being expressed and offered for God sending Jesus on that first Christmas. And can I say for application for us as we draw a lesson amidst everything else we do at Christmas time, certainly, please, certainly, worshiping God for sending Jesus should kind of be a main priority. And you're doing that. You're starting to have a right Christmas. Because worshiping God for sending Jesus is what they were doing. It's what we should be doing. And the extent that we do this, we'll experience peace and have favor among mankind as well. Well, verse 15 and 16, let's close up. It says, So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste quickly and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying 
in a manger. So as the angels return back to heaven, the shepherds, notice they're not commanded to, but they have this strong compulsion, they're compelled spiritually to respond to what they just heard from God. Something prompts them within. They say, let us now go. The idea is without any delay, let's go see for ourselves what has just been made known to us. They're saying, we've heard about this, but we need to go experience this firsthand because they believed what they heard from the word of the Lord. They came, it says there, and what? It says they came and they found Jesus. Because they believed and they responded, they found Jesus. And as a result, it impacted their lives powerfully. Verse 20 says, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was done to them. I want you to notice their spiritual response and faith brought them an encounter with the Lord in a very personal way and in a very powerful way. Because responding to the Lord, listen, is a very important thing. It's a very important thing. Responding to anything is important and a failure to respond to opportunities in life leads to a loss of opportunity. And the same is true spiritually. It's important that we respond to the Lord. Our choice to act in response to what the Spirit of God is doing at times in our lives in a given moment is what brings us into a wonderful experience that God intends for us. Again, can I ask this morning, do you want to have a good Christmas? Then let us respond to the Lord. Amen.